And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we challenge the outputs of our digital society to envision a more radically human-centered future. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, we're pleased to welcome musician and author of Babbling Corpse and the forthcoming Circle of the Snake, Nostalgia and Utopia in the Age of Big Tech, Grafton Tanner. The devices that we use every day, uh, they encourage us to be sort of always on, always on the move, always networking and connecting. Um, it's really stressful a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah. To just live, you know. Um, and uh, when things get stressful, nostalgia tends to tends to peak. Tanner explains how big tech's predictive algorithms are locking us in nostalgic feedback loops and envisions a more radical nostalgia that serves the needs of everybody and not just the privileged few. Before we jump to our conversation with Grafton, we're excited to partner with our friends at Civic Hall to host a special live virtual salon with award-winning author, Trump biographer, and CNN contributor Michael D'Antonio this Wednesday night, December 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. D'Antonio and Jamie will look at what comes next at the borderlands of media, internet, and politics as we move beyond the 2020 presidential election. Registration is free and available now at digitalvoid.media. Grafton, thank you for being here. Hey, no, thank you so much for having me on. You have this uh, argument that there's a, a metaphor that how big tech is fueled by our our human collective desire for nostalgia of a pre-recession, nine, pre-9-11 world, and how that makes us trapped in a perpetual feedback loop. Can you explain your terminology of nostalgia and why it's so difficult to define and why big tech relies heavily on it? Oh, gosh. Yes. Um, you know, no one can come together over a sort of meaningful definition of nostalgia. And it, it's sort of been like this from from day one. And it it's troubled social scientists, psychologists who mainly are the ones saying that nostalgia is good and you should just indulge in it. In fact, there was someone, someone tagged me in something last night on Twitter. New York Times ran this piece like, go, go ahead and watch those 90s movies. You know, <laughs> uh, this is the time to do it. And uh, that's a really narrow understanding of this emotion, even if we want to, even if we want to call it an emotion, which let me just mm-hmm. tell you, not everybody agrees that it is even an emotion, but this is a, this is something that shows up the late 1600s. It's a medical condition uh, of uh, nostalgia is um, this med student, this like 19 year old kid basically decides to coin this new, what he considers to be a disease. That's pretty much just homesickness, just with like a fancier name. And he, he, you know, he wanted to stake his claim, have a new term, and he just wrote this medical dissertation about nostalgia as this thing that was killing Swiss mercenaries. And then that was it. And and it was like he got his degree and moved back to his small hometown of I forget where and and started, you know, being a doctor. But his advisors were super interested in what he had written. And they were the ones who kind of 
popularized this idea of nostalgia as being a disease, which it was for a long time. And so over time, it shifted from being a disease to being something that's sort of just, I mean, naturalized like an emotion. And so uh, we have to kind of, we, we, it was like everybody sort of learned to live with it as this thing. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why um, that shift happened. But when I think about nostalgia, I do think about this paradoxical emotion that, and when you think about emotions in general, like I always compare it to anger. Anger is like mm-hmm. relatively simpler than nostalgia and is something we can kind of maybe grasp onto a little easier. So like anger and nostalgia can be like productive and unproductive. Yeah. Uh, if we wanted to sit around and watch 90s movies, great. Like that's that's super fine. If you want to, you know, use it to mobilize disenfranchised people and point the blame at like immigrants and people of color and things like that and say, hey, back in the day, things were much better because this wasn't happening. Then we got a, we got a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so. I think of it as an emotion that could kind of go one of two ways. And it's always been paradoxical from the very beginning. It was a disease, but it was also a thing that people used to weather like, you know, the trauma of being a soldier in like the Napoleonic armies or something. So it was both of these things at the same time. And it's still that way today. And we have to understand that it isn't always healthy or always unhealthy, just as anger isn't always healthy or always unhealthy. That's excellent. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think... That what brings what you bring to mind, right, with that comparison too, about where to use that energy, um, like the idea of like it, it, the idea of like consuming ninety shows, but it, in the adverse, you bring this up later in the book too. Um, the adverse is kind of like using that same energy to marginalize people even further, and it's like that to me is like also how news media kind of like doesn't really understand the two sides at all because those aren't mm-hmm. equivalent in any way, although they might be touching into the same emotional sector of wherever the brain operates that. Um, and that's interesting because it's like, those are t- two complete different acts using the same emotion, but they are, they're often considered a both sides and they're not like they're really existentially different. Mm-hmm. And so it is interesting. Definitely. Yeah. And that, that, the, that difference has been noted for a long time. I mean, you have, you know, nostalgia scholars for, 50, 60 years or more who will tell you like there's good nostalgia and there's bad nostalgia and the good nostalgia looks like this and the bad nostalgia looks like this. And I mean, even Svetlana Boim, who sort of wrote, you know, the book on nostalgia in 2000, the future of nostalgia, she says the same thing. She says there's reflective and restorative nostalgia, reflective being the one that sort of is more interested in like the ache part of nostalgia, the distance or, or what have you, the ruins and the patina of time and all this. And then there's the restorative nostalgia, which is the we've got to get back there kind. Mm-hmm. The, and and it's the kind that won out over the past 20 years, like easily. Yeah. So then why does what is big tech? Why are they employing that? What is the what do you think is the the desire for the, the big corporations and the, the products in which they control? Is that that healthy for them? Is that like a well, it seems to have worked. It's sort of like almost kind of like an unintended consequence, kind of. Uh there's really three re- ways that like nostalgia sort of gets connected back to big tech. The first is just the simple fact of being on the internet, which is just a giant archive essentially. And we can just pretty much see anything we want at any time we want, you know, and, and um, you know, the, the more you do that, you know, if, if I'm feeling particularly wistful or something, I go to YouTube and want to watch some old Nickelodeon cartoons from the eighties, you know, c- commercials from the eighties and nineties, 
I could do that pretty easily. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've found, you know, I've been online since the beginning of, you know, my life. And so I've had this happen before where I've come across things and be totally shocked. Oh my gosh, I haven't seen that in so long. Like the feeling that I felt right then, that's nostalgia. Okay. So the internet is the archive. Um, the other thing is, uh, or the other way nostalgia gets connected to big tech is that uh, the devices that we use every day, uh, they encourage us to be sort of always on, always on the mm -hmm. move, always networking and connecting. Um, it's really stressful <laughs> a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah. Just live, you know. Um, and uh, when things get stressful, nostalgia tends to, um, tends to peak. And so there's a correlation there. And the other thing is that the sort of the modeling, uh, the, the the way that that data gets modeled and tastes get quantified and then sort of fed back to us through certain recommender algorithms and what have you, you know, these things encourage a kind of stasis. They don't really have novelty written into them, and that's sort of the the design of modeling. Anyway, as we take old data and project it forward, as as James Bridle um, has written. And uh, that projecting forward of the past essentially keeps the past alive, and so a, a nice uh, a nice byproduct of that is that we've all you know we've we've always got you know the old representations of pop culture in our face twenty four seven. Then yeah, I mean like nostalgia is obviously going to sort of generate from that. Uh, and this was being written about. Look, this is being written about you know years and years ago, way before. Netflix way before Spotify, this idea that novelty isn't written into these recommender algorithms. They sort of, they're kind of founded on grids and certain mm -hmm. patterns and that's it. Yeah. The coldness of that is wild when you start thinking of it, because it's not really, it's more of like making a connection versus what your emotions are. So it, it really fills in the gap. It's almost like, you know, like between this, the frames of a film, we, our mind fills those gaps in. It's almost like that the data of a film frame doesn't inherently do anything. It's the react. It's the the mind that creates some sort of meaning with that, like an affect media, like um, mm. Masumi had written about as well. Where it's like, how do we get the virtual into our head? Is simply by making those connections. So it is, it is interesting when you peel back those layers. What you just said, it's like inherently, it's like big tech is using it, but only using it because we're complicit in the the action of it actually working. It, it works because we make it work. Yeah, cause and it's convenient. Yeah. I mean, like you know, Spotify recommends things. I'm like, man, this is a really good song. You know, <laughs> yeah. I I didn't, you know, I do like this, but it's because it's pretty much like everything that I've been listening to before. And look, con content creators know this. I mean, you know, if if I want to make music that really, you know, gets picked up by the algorithms, I've got to make a certain kind of music. You know, uh, music that's sort of. I mean, and you see this all the time with with um, these like fake artists and whatnot that get uploaded to Spotify and get picked up and get millions of streams and whatnot simply because they sound kind of like, you know, something that already exists. Mm -hmm. And like this, this isn't necessarily like destructive really, you know, it's not like this is a going to be the end of the world, but when it mo when it scales to sort of a larger, you know, the larger society or what have you, I mean, I think about the, the students in the UK who there was that huge issue with their, uh, was it their A-level exams or what have you, where these algorithms pretty much discriminated against certain people. I mean, right. there it is in action. That's, that's so fascinating. So I want to come back to that in a little bit, because I, I do want to talk to you a bit about 
some of your conclusions you make in the book. But here I want to actually bring up some of the ideas of like novelty that you were talking about. Um, so I, I was mm. before the show, you we were talking about how I did my my work was my dissertation work, not my overall work. My overall work is like memes and uh, meta text is like really what I studied. But my dissertation was a very specific study on virtual reality between 1987 and 93, in which it was like its first novel boom, like its first like big tech hardware approach. And it really petered out by very quickly, very, very rapidly, because the cost of the units were just unbelievable. And like the sickness that you would get from these things was just awful. So as it goes into later languages like Vermal in the 1990s, we, we look back on virtual reality as hardware when it spent the least amount of time as hardware. It spent the most amount of time as it does now. Like you could really call virtual reality a lot of stuff from everything from Westworld to Ready Player One to whatever as as the immersive environment rather than the headset-based world. So it, you you write that virtual reality, was, it was like viewed as once the absolution of the physical body, like the, the, the eventual progression of that. But we ended up not doing that. We ended up retaining our bodies, but the immersivity got bigger. So it actually did work, but not with the hardware and the novelty. Why do we still think back at the novelty? Why is that so important to industry to think of something as like the novelty rather than its reality? I mean, I think that there's, I think we're still hung up on, on like technology as being a, this sort of binary between something that's physical we can hold in our hands and then something that just exists out there in the cloud and we don't really have to see it, you know, and it's sort of like just in the air. And uh, I think that, I, I think that there's this, this fantasy narrative that's shown up in films for years and years, everything from Tron to the matrix to ready player one, as you say, that uh, just provides us with like the empirical evidence. Here's how it gets done. There's a machine it's we wear it or we hook into it or something and this is how this and then suddenly we're uploaded and i think mm -hmm. trying to tease out the 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 physical the hardware and software of the body like we have bodies but then there's this consciousness thing that we could pluck out of it and put it in virtual reality and leave the body behind and then the 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 consciousness gets to hang out in the virtual realm inside this big server farm or something uh you know, it, it just it I think it's just a popular trope. And I'm not even quite sure other than the fact that I think that we like to consider our bodies as um, not embodied, if you will, like as something that sort of can exist separate from the physical realm that, you know, almost like a data soul that can sort of be extracted and, and encoded into into some sort of uh, machine. And, you know, I think that that's a. I think that's just a, it's a, it's a popular, it works well in narratives. It's because it's, it's kind of simple. And it's also like fits into this sort of religious metaphor too, that we can all one day leave our bodies and go end up in the great place in the sky or, or something. And wow. Yeah. <laughs> I like that a lot. That it answers a lot of questions that I, I've had about VR and that terminology in general. I never thought of it in terms of the overarching concept of immersive spaces, which is like, how easy is it to do that when it's already been pre-built into our culture? Yeah, it's it's long running. And, you know, someone like in Catherine Hales back in the 90s was writing about this. And she said, look, you can't, th this is just impossible. The human 
is also a body. There, there's no sort of data that can be sort of peeled off of it and then, and then put in a machine somewhere or something or like integrated with software. It's just not going to happen. And so, but I, but I, it's just it's 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 got. I think it has religious roots. Well, that's great. Uh, so that that is that that helps me a lot. Under that helps me with a lot of the understanding of a lot of the the works. So I appreciate that that approach. So it's switching a little bit. Um, just because I want to just jump backward a little bit into babbling corpse. Um, so I, I taught a course for a while uh, about how memes like operate, like it was uh, how it works and about how the ephemerality of feeling is really what's being contained in memes, like the energy. Um, and very often in my class, I would show at the beginning video memes and I use most specifically too many cooks, which of course the class is just very uncomfortable at the end of watching it. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, I appreciate you writing an analysis of too many cooks. And I also like that the, the imprint you used, like you zero gives you a lot of space to do these really phenomenal analyses of like video text, you know? And I, I, I think that I was like, I I've been handing that piece out that chapter out from the book in my classes since then, because it's just so, so well put together. Thank you. I just want to bring up a point about it though. The, you bring up, something about what you just mentioned before about novelty, that the parody in its repetitive nature, like the, the fact it's looping, presents the content of our memory the way Epcot presents other countries. And I love that. And you, you say, but in the end, it reveals the repetitive nature of the, quote, struggles of white heteronormative families. Do you think that tool, that, that tool of parody, that tool of repetition can also like kind of concretize meaning in that way too? Like, is that is that dangerous to do something like that, or is that is that tool of too many cooks? Should that maybe not be used anymore? Or is that that a one off? Um, well, first, I love too many cooks. Let me just tell you, <laughs> me too. I really just <laughs> there was just something in the water then, you know, this like <laughs> uh, destruction by repetition or like er erosion by repetition, sort of thing, and. You know, and I think that's what drew me to, to, to vaporwave initially, but I think that too many cooks does a great job at parodying sort of what I feel like everybody kind of already knew, which was that, you know, sitcoms can be really suffocatingly white and, and familial and gross in that way. And it's sort of, um, I don't know, maybe like allowed people to act out this fantasy of running into the set of Brady Bunch and killing everybody because you just couldn't take it anymore. And I, that to me, that's what I think it did really well. But I really also, I think that it sort of functions as a kind of like time travel revision or something where this murderous figure in the, in the story is sort of like Jack Torrance kind of the shining character uh, is kind of like us going back and, uh, and finally doing that thing to it. And, you know, just disabling the entire situational comedy, the whole, the whole, all the tropes and everything. And um, I, you know, and I think one of the interesting things about memes is that we make memes of things that we want other people to pick up on. We, we want them to get it too. And so, uh, we, we want other people to rally behind a meaning that maybe can't be expressed any other way than, than through the meme. And so uh, 
I, I sometimes think if we had, obviously this is just, I'm breaking all of the rules of historical thinking, but if we had a kind of social network that we have today, like back in the days of the sitcoms, you wouldn't have the sitcoms because everybody would kind of understand how horrible they are and would make jokes and what whatnot. With that not being there, that sort of meme economy not there, uh, we have these sort of these stories and shows from that era, lots of them that we can do one or two things with. We can either parody them like too many cooks, or we can watch them and get all nostalgic while watching them. That makes amazing amount of sense. That is a, a fantastic. I almost regret I should have just contacted you while I was presenting that because that is such a good description of it. And I, oftentimes students or, or even people ask like, what happens if we had memes or social media at any other given time? And I was like, well, it would look like now. I mean, it would, it would very much be a structural breakdown because that the access points of diverse voices allow that. However, I always say, and now I'm going to start using your term too, uh, but I always say that there, it comes with the cost of what happens with commodification inside of those spaces because right. they don't just self-sustain. So they have to somehow prioritize some sort of commodification or com capitalistic structure in it. And I want to just riff off of what you said about destruction by repetition because that is brilliant. That's amazing. Um, in Circle of the Snake, you, you talk about how movements like BLM or internet-guided activism is accessible and possible because of the internet. However, it does, it's the same platforms. Mm -hmm. In fact, if anything, it's more of a tool of the far right because of its ability to kind of be a native space for the far right. It kind of is like that less so for generalized media spaces. Um, and I want, I, I think what's interesting now is we're seeing a hedge industry of reaction reactionaries people who are just simply creating grift based on knowing that they could dismantle or destruct using the repetition so if something exists they could react to it which causes a reaction which they could react to once again and so in the end like is it that that uh too many cooks to to jump back to that is like kind of like a framework for almost like an ephemeral framework of what actually is happening when we watch real-time things collapse um what do you think of the idea of like the head, the small industries of like people leveraging their grift off of reacting sh reactions, like reaction reactionaries. Yeah. I mean, I think that ties back into, you know, sort of the function of, of, I mean, it does function kind of like a meme and the way that that functions is let me say something that let me have a, let me have my take that other people can um, go. Thank you. Finally, I've been, I've been thinking that the entire time or, and you know, and that generates clicks and traffic just as much as the other side that goes, I can't believe you said that. What in the world, you know, and both of these things generate, you know, they generate eyeballs on the screen, you know? Uh, so yeah, it really is sort of a native space. And like, I, Oh gosh, the, like the, um, the reaction videos of, you know, oh my gosh, everything, e even the stuff that isn't like horrifically alt-right or something like this stuff, like this is my first time listening to Jeff Buckley. Here's my reaction, you yeah. know, or like, uh, you know, and, but even some of it too, you can even step back and even look at reaction memes, reaction videos as being part of an even larger trend, which is a sort of just like, critical um gaze uh I, I think about like you know 
the everything wrong with Star Wars in 10 minutes videos. Um, I think these are kind of part of that too, is, is um, being able to analyze more finely, get down into the, into the, the, the weeds on, on certain with films and music or what have you, and probe them more deeply. And uh, while also uh, generating a bunch of hot takes that everybody can either get mad about or, or join in and, you know, look, that, that doesn't really have a problem when we're talking about Star Wars, you know, but it does have a problem. We start talking about groups of people or like we start to use it in politics, which is, you know, the Trump card, if you will, let me, you know, here's my hot take on this group of people. And I throw it out on Twitter into the world or something, you know, that's when we start to have issues. Right. Oh man, that's, that is a great, it's a great take. No, it's a, that's a, that's a really important way of looking at it. And that's a, that to hottest me is take. like the, yeah, it's a very hottest take. The oftentimes I, I get exhausted like on platforms just because I feel compelled or feel like an urgency to add something to the discourse only realizing later or hopefully realizing beforehand, which is hopefully more often than not that by adding a take to it, it amplifies something that was by design. So like, mm. like to, I, I was actually thinking about yesterday about, um, I was going to write a piece, but I didn't because I didn't want to about par I was going to call it parlor games, which is like the entire day was talking about how people were moving to another social media platform. And I was like, but maybe oh, right. in many cases, maybe we don't need to know, like we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't be leveraging or platforming voices like that, knowing full well that it's already been colonized by a certain group for a very specific reason. And now we're telling people where the door is. And so it's almost like right. those types of takes sometimes don't offer a take. Sometimes they offer just the ability to leverage something that was probably not by design. It becomes retrospectively by design, but it was probably yeah. more along the lines of not something we want to interact with. And that that in the end leads to destructive capability. Or adversely, maybe it's by design because flattening out the fields is probably keeps platforms uh, less stagnant. You know, it, it helps them understand how to compete with other types of platforms. So it, it, that I think is a, maybe that's not really a question or anything like that, but it is interesting how those types right. of interactions are, are, are inbuilt into the, the, the environment. Yeah. You know, I think about um, what Jenny O'Dell wrote in um, her book, how to do nothing, which is sort of mm -hmm. like great book. Yeah, it's excellent. And, you know, um, you know, she writes about the, I forget her exact term, but, you know, sort of the right to not engage and to not post and to not join the chorus of, of opinions. Uh, and that is almost like a, a sort of radical idea. I mean, even, you know, even when I first read it, I was like, oh yeah, duh. Like, you know, you just forget, <laughs> you know, because I think you're so, you know, you're constantly doing the work as a digital laborer for these platforms. Everybody knows this, you know, uh, and, and being able to not engage, you know, is nice. And I don't mean to get like individualistic, like you just have to put down the phone. Like I hate that, you know, but mm -hmm. at the same time, uh, being able to, being able to sort of know, I know your place in the, in this digital structure, who you are, you know, it could kind of feel like that when you 
post something and it goes viral or what have you gets tons of likes or, or, or whatever. And I'm guilty of this. Of course, when you do this, it can kind of feel like, you, you know, you're like on top of the world. You're like the center of the, of the entire network. You know, everybody's coming to you. You're so important. Uh, but you're still just a laborer for these giant corporations. You know, if anything, it's just kind of like you hit the bonus by doing that. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe you can come back and try to hit it again, you know, and um, it's definitely like slot machine mentality. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And um, it's interesting, too, because there is no the payout is so strange. It's like such a, a very strange and uh, very rapid uh, payout. Like it, you just you, you get this joy and this odd feeling and then also it just goes away almost immediately. Like it's just so odd of uh of a desire. So it's almost like that it is, it's very similar to like a functional drug. That's that just sort of does that. But they're all going back to nostalgia too. It's like, you can't really, you don't really remember those moments. You don't go back and be like, Oh man, those are the days when I was getting like good takes <laughs> on a daily basis. You know, like the, there was, that's not like part of it. You know, it's like, that's something that's like external to that system. So it's like, it, it just works. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I want to switch a little bit to a little speaking of politics, because this has been on my mind uh, pretty much every day. Uh, so um, I, I just want to talk to you about uh, your writing in uh, Circle of Snake about Benjamin and how his framework about the aestheticization of politics is is really something that we've been watching over the course of the last several years. And it's very it's almost reductionist or almost too simple to the point where it's almost like it's obvious, it's obviousness <laughs> obviates its need to talk about it. Um, but the, it is there, but I'm wondering about this idea that you extend to, which is like, then wars become entertainment in the social media, just like wars became entertainment on television. And what we've just recently seen is like, now we've gone down to like stats numbers have become like objectified. They became like almost like to the point where they became like a pride marker about these numbers. And so numbers themselves are this, that then leads downstream to like the aestheticization of like what we saw all summer with like social media posts using activism and like using the carousel feature to create like these uh, hyper stylized downstream from mommy blogger style, um, trying their best to be activists, but not really doing anything. Do you think, can the center hold on this? Can the container, like can Instagram, can this be, this isn't forever, right? Like this is, (laughs) When you mean numbers, do you mean sort of the sort of the info glut of yeah. like the data? Correct. Like yeah, info glut. COVID-19 I like that term. Numbers. Yeah, COVID nineteen electoral numbers, ballot numbers. Just everything has just become like this this data dump that people are trying to make sense of, and so they're making sense of it through, from what I've seen recently, is a very vast amount of aestheticizations that are downstream from the summer's uh, activism, digital activism that's come from online spaces, and it's clicktivism, obviously, but. Uh, well, I have to make a plug since I said info, info glut, the, um, Mark Andreevich's book info glut, I just like early 2010s. I absolutely recommend it because, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's done so much work on, um, information overload and how there's more information than could ever be collated and understood in anyway, Um, yeah, you know, oh gosh, I, you know, I, I I'm interested in data especially as it relates to, so I, I was, I wrote this thing. It was totally unpublished, but I was writing this thing about uh, gun violence, death. Um, 
and it got me thinking about it again. This is years ago. It got me thinking about it again with, with COVID-19 because once COVID-19 starts to generate numbers, data starts to generate how many people have it, mm-hmm. who has died from it, this statistic, et cetera. As soon as you throw that out into the world, then you have people who will start to compare it with other kinds of data. Well, it's not as bad as flu. Well, it doesn't have the transmission rate like flu. Well, H1N1 did this versus COVID-19. And obviously this is like important work, uh, but it gets so easily politicized because once you start to rank death mm. on a scale, you know, it's like we, every, you know, more people die every year from automobile accidents. We didn't shut down the economy for that, this kind of thing. The idea that like death is pretty much reducible to numbers like everything else is just frankly, ethically so wrong. Mm-hmm. And and bothered me to it still does, but again, it's just sort of trying to take data and take control of this narrative, which again is sort of to go back to you know Benjamin kind of kind of plays into this idea of everything being representational, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and which is an erasure, of course, of real people's experiences, material conditions, actual things like racism and microaggressions and all of this, the data and the representationalism of politics, if you will, mm-hmm. like a lot of that just sort of is what drives the narratives that we encounter every day. And everybody knows this. That's the other thing too, is I just, like, I think people are aware to some extent and and of, of the, the narrative wars and the culture wars and that the the ultimate goal is to sort of just take control of the narrative just for a moment, just for a week, you know, because then maybe, you know, we can get some, you know, they could get things done or they can make some money. And then the narrative goes somebody else grabs it. And so then you lose it. And so your whole point is to get it back. And that sort of back and forthness, you know, it's, it really makes it hard for anybody to get any real things done, like healthcare for people or, waiving student debt or pulling out of countries we shouldn't be in things like this you know if you're not it's it's you can ignore doing all of that and keep the status quo the status quo by only reducing things to narratives and just kind of throwing the ball back and forth yeah yeah that reductionism is is disastrous you know like and that i think that ball back and forth derives directly back to what we were talking about before about your destruct the, the idea of destruction by repetition, but also the reaction reactionaries. It it just it's the, yeah. If we're not aiming towards something that like it still amazes me in this in this pandemic that we don't have healthcare for all. Like it just it's it's really strange. Like it's just a strange moment to consistently consider about. And, and everybody's like, rather than making that the singular narrative, it's just like <laughs> I'm gonna make the best I'm gonna make the best take of the day. Yeah. But, but then they always say like, there's always a main character of Twitter every day, and your goal is not to be that. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I had friends of mine who, lo- who lost health insurance and still don't have oh it because they lost their job. They still don't have it. It's, Holy it's shit. November. They lost it in March. You know, it's like these things are real, but see the way, at least in the United States, you know, in particular, the way that things are run it's the maintenance of capitalism. It mm-hmm. must be maintained. That's sort of the goal of our you know, the people who run this country, uh, it has to be maintained. If you want to main, maintain it, if it's kind of, kind of keep it all together, it's like constantly trying to spell out like hurting cats or something. You got to keep it all together. And doing that means you really can't 
do anything new. You really can't do anything new. You can't um you can't do it. You can't try anything too experimental. God forbid something like giving people healthcare is experimental, but in the U.S. it is, and so you have to you have to try to keep yeah. it on track. And doing that maintains a status quo that, like nobody really wants. I mean, you look at the you know the the statistics of people who support some of these radically socialist you know whatevers. There, it, it, it's like seventy percent of people want this and that and. And it's, yeah, but, these, you know, the managers of way. capital, like, as we go back to Marx is like, yeah, it's people who don't actually benefit in any way, but yet have to manage that system for the upper systems at the cost of everyone in every direction around them. It's, it's fascinating that we consistently do this. And that, that I'm sure that's like part of, I mean, it's, we're just talking about the system at this point, you know, it's like capitalism in general, but it's like, it is interesting to think of that, like the protectors. And the maintainers is like kind of like status quo just being like this this unactionable behemoth that like takes work so anyway sorry that was just a little bit of a tangent because it's you know that's it's i'm really sorry to hear like about any of my friends any of my students anybody at this point that like is not just unemployed without benefits but also sick too it's like it's just a an incredibly difficult time yeah interestingly enough i think so much of the current zeitgeist is nostalgia because of the material condition of the working class, of the rapidly deteriorating middle class, and the disproportionate allocation of wealth in the United States. And you spoke earlier about an article that came out about watching nostalgic movies and certainly nostalgia for a pre 9-11 or a pre-housing recession economy is maybe even that type of nostalgia is prevalent today because people are looking to go back to a time when their material reality or at least the opportunity or expectation for a future they never lived existed but we begin to see the cultural production of uh the aesthetic and cultural production of uh, sounds of nostalgia from Arcade Fire experimenting with 80 sounds to Taylor Swift in 1989 and even Luke Bryan. And you believe audiences have been conditioned to accept the pre-digital environment as more real, as a more real environment. And nostalgia for a past that many people and many participants of this digital media environment never even lived. Similarly, we see how platform aesthetics and design choices evoke nostalgia. Instagram's font is Billabong, the 1970s surf company, and it uses a Polaroid camera. So the trade-off for comfort and nostalgia is our own privacy. But if we prioritize privacy, what will platforms have left to sell us? Yeah, uh, nothing. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that is the business model. Um, and you're right. It is a trade-off. I mean, it, and it's not, it, it, it isn't just, uh, being able to, you know, like have nostalgic objects on tap through social media in exchange for, you know, giving up our privacy or something. It's also just, you know, um, just sheer information, being able to have information all the time at your fingertips and be in the know and, perhaps, you know, get a little famous in the process. 
and giving up our privacy as sort of the the cost of of that. Um, gosh, you said something. It reminded me. Oh, um, you know, yeah, these sort of late twentieth century images that we have a lot of that you know endless supplies and heck even if we didn't it's like you know people don't ever get tired of watching hocus pocus every uh, day for the month of october you know um there's there's a lot of it um to to consume and i think about like what mark fisher wrote in ghosts of my life in which he uh talked about he said you know Back in the day, late 20th century, he said, you, you can't ignore the fact that there are material conditions that allow for people to live differently than they do today, and in many respects, much better. He said at the same time, though, it was horrific for many, many people, you know, typically people of color and uh, LGBTQ individuals, etc. He said, you know, the the people who are yearning to go back or the, the he, he didn't say this, but we could we could take that and look at someone like Donald Trump, for example, or any of the autocrats across the world who sort of look back at, you know, the previous decades and, and they're not talking about like raising the tax rates so that people like Jeff Bezos don't exist anymore. They're talking about going back to like a pre-civil rights time where it's like, we don't have, you know, certain people who aren't white on our screens, for example. Uh, but I, I, you know, we have to be careful thinking like that because I, and I use, I, a lot of times I use higher education as an example, the old system of higher ed before the two thousands, um, had its share of problems. Obviously, you know, it was still hard to get a job if you got a PhD, you know, uh, but it was comparatively much easier to get a job in like, say a field like English before 2000 in higher ed than it is today. And it like, especially after 2008, there was a window there in the early 2000s where if you got a PhD, for example, in a humanities field, you might, you might get work. 2008 hits, like that's over with, you know, it starts to maybe try to get its legs again and then bam, COVID-19 and and the effects of which we're still not entirely sure in terms of all industries, but especially in terms of higher ed. Um, And so we have to do this thing where we look back and we go, you know, yeah, I kind of yearn for the pre-neoliberal university, you know, or the university that was a little less neoliberal. But it wasn't by any means utopia. You know, it certainly had its problems. But my gosh, have things just gotten worse? And so I think it's important to to remember that 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 those those doses of nostalgia can be productive in helping us understand how we might try to fight for a better future for better conditions today without succumbing completely to this bald lie that everything was just better in the 1980s which is absolutely what gets presented in an unadulterated sense in things like stranger things which i just think is the worst tv series ever (laughs) you know it's just such a piece of propaganda it's a heteronormative very white approach to the 19 that's the 1980s i never watched it um i (laughs) it didn't appear but it is a show that builds on a false past like it it creates a a retro show with the modern concepts of 
reality and it's like it doesn't it actually doesn't fit into time at all which is like such a strain that's why you're writing on that your chapter on that is just fantastic that 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 alone is worth the purchase of the the book just to read that it's it's absolutely incredible analysis of the text and and oh, along you. that those lines you don't propose abandoning nostalgia altogether but instead propose a radical nostalgia one that's crafted from memories of collective resistance community organization civil rights and local politics what can we do individually and collectively to imagine and enact radical nostalgia, especially in a moment like we are currently in? You know, that's a good question. And uh, so I'm, I'm currently right now writing a general, what you may call like a recent history of nostalgia uh, for repeater books. It's going to be out um, next October. And I'm ending that book with a section on on radical nostalgia and sort of unpacking it just a little bit more. And so I'm still working through it, but that book is looking at nostalgia as it shows up in everything from war to, um, to issues with global warming to, um, you know, culture industry issues and, you know, aesthetics of escape like people who escape to the cabin to like get out of modern life or people or like the rich people trying to escape into their pods as douglas rushkoff has written about and all these sort of places where nostalgia kind of shows up and so i'm I'm working through this concept and i like to think about it as sort of like a third possibility to svetlana boehm's binary of reflective and restorative nostalgia one of which you know the restorative is like i said the one that is all about the home part of nostalgia getting back home and then the reflective which is more about the ache and and sort of almost you might even consider it sort of hauntological this sort of melancholic disposition of of mourning that is that doesn't have the conspiratorial elements that that restorative nostalgia does I think there has to be sort of like a third R, which I think is what I would consider to be radical nostalgia, which um, takes the action steps, if you will, of something like a restorative approach. Um, but instead of, you know, I mean, it's like it's like it's it's inherently anti-fascist. It would be inherently leftist and would uh, take the action steps of restorative nostalgia. And instead of trying to go back to the you know suffocating normativity of leave it to beaver or something instead we search those more like hidden spaces that have literally effectively been erased from the public memory uh and and you know or like the official record the official historical record um and i mean i think even about like the beginning of circle of the snake i'm right very briefly about the versatronic strike that occurred in the early nineties uh, in Silicon Valley, you know, a, uh, a workforce that was kind of deemed unorganizable. And yet there was this, there was a strike that like, you know, doesn't get talked about a lot. There's just not much written about it. Um, and, and it's like being able to draw on those who came before and even yearn for that sort of uh, collective action, I think is extremely potent today and it's already being done like this isn't anything you know uh novel by any means but i think it's just important to remember because it can be really easy to bash nostalgia just just essentially and i've i 
plenty of people do it. It's like we need this. They, they say we need this reality check, like uh, so that we don't succumb to it or whatever. It's a modern condition. You're going to have it. I, I, don't, I think it's inescapable. And if you're already looking back, uh, you might as well be looking at at things to help you imagine a more equitable future instead of the make America great again impulse. Thank you so much. I, I don't think we should go further than that. That is a very beautiful way to end this. And we really appreciate your time and talking to us today and your, your, your excellent writing that brings these thoughts to us. So we really appreciate you being here. Is, Thank you. is there anything you want to add or is there uh, any extra thoughts you may have? No, I just thank, thank you so much for letting me, uh, speak with with you two about this i i certainly am i'm very grateful the circle of the snake nostalgia and utopia in the age of big tech is available at your favorite local bookseller on december 11th make sure to join us this wednesday night december 9th for our special virtual salon featuring author and cnn contributor michael d'antonio registration is free and available now at digitalvoid.media You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay in touch by searching for Digital Void. Stay safe, everyone. We will return next week.